Good morning. It's good to be worshiping with you all on this Labor Day weekend. If we've not met, my name is Bill Smith, and I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. We are wrapping up today a very short Sunday morning teaching series that has been looking at the people of God. So two weeks ago, we looked at whom God chooses to use. And we discovered that he chooses the weak, not the strong, in order to touch other people's lives and to advance his kingdom. Last week, we saw the kind of world that his people live in. That it's a world of suffering, a world of pain, one that is crushing to live in. A world that tries to make you forget that you are an image of God. We saw that you and I live in a really hard world, but we also saw that it's possible to live in that world with God's redemptive power for his redemptive purposes so that we regain what God made us to be. This week, we're considering what do we do that's redemptive? What does that actually look like now that God has rescued us, restored us, so that we live with his purposes in mind? And if you think about the book of 1 Timothy, that in some sense is what the entire book is about. Paul's been writing to his colleague, Timothy, because there were some teachers in the Ephesian church, that's where Timothy is, who were mixing in other teachings along with the gospel. And they were essentially saying to people that the gospel is a good start, but if you really want to live well, then you need to add in these other things to it. Now, the problem with that is what? That, that kind of thinking shrinks the gospel, it limits the gospel, puts it in its own little category over here, so that what Jesus did now is the way that you start a life with God, but then because it's tucked away in this little box, it doesn't inform how you actually go about living your life before the face of God. It becomes boxed into, you know, church stuff, doesn't flow over into the rest of the week. Those other things, however, that the false teachers were promoting then do what? They become the things that you rely on. These are the things that seem to speak into your world far more than the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. But that's only because you've not done the hard work of actually teasing out the implications of the gospel for daily life. And so Paul is writing to Timothy here to show how what Jesus did now extends into your life, how it extends into how you live and how you, it extends into your relationships. And here you have to make sure that you get the connection right, the direction correct. Simply because you live a good life, just because you do good things that other Christians do, does not mean that you're actually connected to Christ. Doing good things does not make you a Christian. Those good things don't make God happy with you. What makes God happy with you are the good things that Jesus did for you. That he took away God's judgment against you and that he shared his goodness with you. And it's those things now that make God happy with you. Happy in the sense that God literally could not love you more than he does right now. That's the gospel, the great exchange. That when you trust Jesus to make things right between you and God, then what he did on the cross is then applied to you he got what you deserve for how you lived, and you get what he deserves for how he lived. And, you get a bonus, you get his spirit now inside of you, changing you, giving you those desires so that you now want to live like Christ lives. You see the connection here? What you do does not make you good enough for God. It's what Jesus did that makes you good enough for God. But, 
that doesn't mean a Christian now does whatever they want. If you're following Christ, if your life is connected to Christ, your life starts to line up with his. And so Paul is writing to Timothy to draw out the ethical implications of the gospel, to show that if this is what you believe, then this is what your life ends up looking like. And the very first thing that he says here in chapter 2 is that we need to start vertically. We need to pray. Now that we have a connection with God that we didn't have before, we need to talk with him. We need to stay tight with him. At first glance, you think, well, that's not really earth-shattering, right? That, that's kind of expected. The first great commandment is that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So it, it just makes sense that one of the first implications of having a relationship with him is that we would talk to him, that we would pray. It makes sense. It's what we've all heard before. It's probably what most all of us agree. And it's something that I would guess that most of us would say is really not the strongest part of our lives. That we don't engage in prayer as much as even we think we should. And when we do engage in prayer, it doesn't really feel like there's much of a connection there. Certainly not a connection with this incredible, amazing, awesome being. I was just talking to someone this past week. He's in a small group of guys who ask each other daily how they're doing with reading scripture and praying. And he said something to me that I think is instructive for all of us. He said, so I'm reading and I'm praying now more because I know that they're going to ask. And I don't really feel like I'm connecting more with God. Instead, I realize that I'm doing this so that when the guys ask, I can say the right thing. I can say that I'm putting in my time. And so it's kind of just me being good, feeling good about myself, making th other people think that I'm good instead of this time actually being about being with God. I think he's speaking for a lot of us, speaking for me. We all know that we're supposed to pray. We all know now that we get to pray. And yet many of us don't feel like we're doing a whole lot when we pray. This is one of those things that tells you how deep your faith really is. How much you really think you need God's presence and God's power in your life. If you know, or if you say, that God sovereignly runs his universe, but you hardly ever pray, and when you do, you really don't expect him to do much, then you have to ask the question, what's your faith really in? Clearly not in him, which means that your faith is functionally in something else, something that seems more powerful, something that seems more appealing than having the active presence of God in your life. That's the gap that the false teachers at Ephesus were filling. They were offering other things that people could do, things that people could manage, things that people could control on their own to fill their, that gap to make their lives work. Something other than a vibrant relationship with a God who is passionately, deeply in love with you. One of the first things then that Paul says to correct the Ephesians is to redirect them to what they're trusting in, to redirect them back to God. And what he's saying to you and me, in effect, is this is one of the most practical things you can do in your life. You can pray. And he gives a couple different words there to unpack what he means. You can supplicate. You can ask God to do things that you can't. If you live in the world that we saw last week, a world of suffering and pain, 
one that's controlled by evil that's tried to bring you on in its war against God, you need the power of God on a daily basis just to enter into that hope with that, that world with any hope of living differently. And so supplicate him, ask, and intercede with him. Talk to him on behalf of others whose lives show how badly they need help. In other words, by starting here, Paul is saying, stop pretending that you can deal with the presence of evil, that you can deal with the distorted spirituality in this world with mere human effort. Instead, engage God. Ask him to be that much more involved in the things that you face. That's a message I could probably stand to hear multiple times in a day. But then Paul throws us a curveball. Probably didn't see this coming. He's not simply talking about prayer in general. The sermon's not about prayer in general. Instead, Paul has in mind a very specific kind of prayer. He urges, verse 1, that supplications, prayers, intercession, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And if we stop there, what would that probably look like for most of us? I think most of us would probably start with the people who are closest to us, right? We would pray for our families, pray for our spouses, pray for our children, pray for our parents. Then maybe we move out a little bit, we pray for our friends, pray for our roommates, branch out a little bit more, pray for people in class, pray for people at work, maybe the folks who live down the street. We'd start in close and then move outward. And Paul does not do that. He tells us that if we're going to live in the world with God's purposes in view, then we need, first of all, to pray, verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions. He says that a key factor in whether we're living with God's purposes in mind starts by praying for the people who, for most of us, are, are the furthest out, the most remote people you can imagine, people we're never, ever going to meet, for world leaders and authorities. And he says that as remote as those people are, you need to start there because they have something to do with how we live out the Christian life. They have something to do with us advancing God's purposes in the world. And so if you want to enter into what God is up to, if we want to work alongside him, then we need this unique kind of prayer. Now to better see what that means, because there's a lot of bad things that people think that that means, but to better see what that means, we need first to see what to pray for. What's the goal that we're praying for? And second, we need, to see, we need to see the attitude that we have to have as we pray. So just two main points today. What we need to pray for and the attitude that we need to have. So first, what's our goal? Verse 2. We are to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. Why? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, and dignified in every way. What's the goal? You have to be careful here because it almost sounds like the goal is that we would be left alone. And that's not it. It sounds a little bit like it. I'm reminded of a scene out of Fiddler on the Roof, and I'm probably dating myself by raising that. Fiddler on the Roof, for those of you who don't know, was a Broadway musical from the 60s. It got turned into a movie. It was about life in a small Jewish village in the Ukraine under Imperial Russia in 1905. And early in the opening scene, the rabbi's son wants to know, is there a proper blessing for the czar? To which the rabbi responds, of course. And so he prays, may God bless and keep the czar far away from us, 
It almost sounds a little bit like that's what Paul is urging us to pray. We pray, we supplicate God, intercede for those in authority that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life that they would leave us alone. But put what we're praying for in the context of what God has been doing throughout Scripture. And you realize that God's goal here is much richer than that we would be ignored. Much more life and world changing than that. Those peaceful and quiet lives are attached to what? To being godly and dignified in every way. They are lives that God approves of. Peaceful and quiet is not that we're left alone to do and be whatever we want, not hassled by anyone else. It's so that we are more able to fully enter into this life that God has called us to, so that we are free to live the kind of lives that God tells us to. And when I put it that way, you realize that's what God's been doing throughout Scripture. Go back into Genesis, before the fall of humanity into sin. And God's desire is that we would live in his world, that we would build relationships with him, that we would build relationships with each other, build societies that reflect him. That we would build societies here on earth that reflect the one that he builds in heaven. It's what God desired in creation. And as you read through scripture, you realize he has not changed his desire. It's what he still wants as he redeems this world after it's been plunged into darkness. So you can think here about the Exodus. That's when God brought his people out of Egypt. He did that unilaterally. They contributed nothing to their own rescue. And it wasn't until he brought them out that he gave them his commandments. And in effect, what he's saying is, I have a lifestyle for you. Commandments. Law. A good lifestyle that will bless you. It's a way of living with me and with each other that if you actually live this out, will produce a society where everyone flourishes. A community that you're just going to love living in. But I can't give you those commands while you're still enslaved in Egypt. Because in Egypt, you're not free to fully obey me. You can have you can't have no other gods before me when Pharaoh declares that he is God over you. And so you're not free to fully obey me to do what is best for human beings. And so first, I'm going to bring you out of there. And then I'm going to give you my commands for how to live. And I'm going to give you your own land to live in so that you're free now to live out what really is best for you, what I command you. What is that? That's God breaking into a sin-cursed, fallen world with his power to bring about his initial creation vision for humanity. That's what redemption is. God involves himself in our lives so that we become what he made us to be. And that's what Paul is saying we have to pray for as well. We have to pray that the authorities that we live under, including those who don't know or acknowledge God as God, that those authorities would rule in such a way that we have the freedom to live the lives that God has called us to live. We pray for them so we can have the freedom to practice our faith, the freedom to listen to God, the freedom to obey God. And so we pray so that we can build marriages with God's ideas in mind. Marriages that flourish, not marriages that people just survive in or throw away. We pray so that we can raise our children to grow into full images of God in their own right. So they become responsible persons who can enter into society with God's desires in mind, not being a burden or a drain on others. 
We pray so that we can go to work and work like God calls us to work. So we can be reliable, dependable, ethical in our careers without idolizing work on the one hand and without just putting in our time on the other. We pray so that we can be a blessing to our communities, so that we are received, so we can serve and volunteer to make other people's lives better, not just take what we can get for ourselves. We pray so that we can enter into daily life, whether that's at home, at school, at work, on the soccer field, with God's kingdom agenda in our mind, doing our best to live out a kingdom lifestyle now that he's made us part of his kingdom. This is good, verse 3 says, and it does two things. First, it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who second, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Why do we go about living this way? Well, first, it, it, it brings glory to God. It shows how excellent he is, how much better his ways are than any others could be. It's pleasing in his sight, brings him glory. And in doing that, it also has an evangelistic element. It shows people what a new life in Christ looks like so that others might come to the knowledge of the truth. People who are not yet part of God's people can watch as what? As we put God's commands into practice. They then see what a God-oriented life produces. Again, not because we're better than anyone else, but because our God loved us so much that he rescued us. He brought us out of what? Out of our self-absorption, set us free from ourselves, and now he just pours himself in so that we are overflowing so that we can now live out the kind of life he does, a life that is lived for the good of other people, not self-reflective. Say it a different way. Jesus died so that we could have a life that's not about living for ourselves, not about making our dreams come true. That kind of life only trashes relationships. You just look around at the rest of the world and you realize the evidence for that is overwhelming. Live for yourself and what you want, and you will not be happier. We don't live now to make our dreams come true. In this sense, we live to make his dreams come true because his dreams are about an eternal, bliss-filled community of people living to their full potential, including us, living to our full potential. And so we live running to God, asking him to fill us, to love us in ways that no human being can, so that we have everything that we need to overflow into the lives of other people. Not so that our lives are empty and flabby and joyless, but so that they're overflowing, even when they're hard. God's design on this planet is that we become the visible, physical evidence that his plan is amazing and that it really works. That you can be so radically transformed from the inside out that you can overcome everything that this world throws against you and you can do so joyfully, impacting other people's lives as you go. We are the visible, physical evidence that God's way is best, which then makes us God's invitation to other people. An invitation that asks, man, look at this. Now, would you be interested in knowing more about this God who does this kind of thing with people? And so in one sense, we don't really do anything different 
from anyone else on the planet. We eat, sleep, work, build relationships, raise children, retire, suffer, we get sick, we die, just like everyone else. But we do it as different people with a different orientation, a different allegiance to a kingdom that is not part of this world because we're connected to a God who's not part of this world. And simply by living these day-to-day -day peaceful and quiet lives, lives that are godly and dignified in every way, we make visible what a God-filled life looks like, what it feels like. It's a glorious vision that God has for us. But it's really hard to do, to show God's excellence to the larger universe, if our authorities enact policies that make it harder for us to follow God. And so what? We, we pray for them that we might live quiet and peaceful, godly and dignified lives. That's point one, the, the goal behind why we pray. Point two, what kind of attitude do we have as we pray for those in authority? Especially if our government, like the Roman Empire was in Paul's day, if our government were to be antagonistic to us and to how God calls us to live. Paul starts out in verse 1 telling us that we need to pray for those in authority with what? Supplications, prayers, intercessions, all make sense, right? Dear God, please change, please help, please intervene so that we can live godly lives. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Thanksgivings for all people, starting with kings and those in authority. I'm not sure I saw that coming. Praying for them, sure, I get that. With thanksgiving? You think, well, wait a minute. <laughs> in Paul's day, there were no authorities who worked to advance the kingdom of God. No one in authority anywhere was a Christian. No one in authority cared about enacting policies that would help usher in the kingdom of God. So how could people pray with thanksgiving for them? It's actually worse the longer you think about it. Because at that time, Nero is the emperor. Nero was a vain, cruel man. His hostility to the Christian faith was widely known already when Paul was writing this. In just a matter of a few years, he's going to unleash this hatred and persecution against Christians in Rome, against our brothers and sisters. He was a king who was by no means neutral to the faith, actively worked against the kingdom of God, pitted himself against God, by destroying God's people, and we're supposed to pray for him with thanksgiving. That was a hard sell then, just like it's a hard sell now. It's a call that you would be hard-pressed to find many Christians giving themselves to in the modern age in the U.S. How do you hear believers often interacting with governments? I hear many of us grumbling about our governments more than I hear us praying with thanksgiving. Or I hear us urging the virtues of one politician over the other, one party over the other, not thanking God regardless of who's in office. Or when we do actually think about praying, don't we tend to pray that God would intervene to what? To move people's hearts so they, they vote for the person that what? We like or vote for the party that we like. Or that when someone else wins who we don't like, don't we sometimes pray that God will change that, that person's heart so that what? 
so that they'll start making decisions that we think are best. What I don't hear in prayer and what I don't hear in discussion are people praying for our leaders with thanksgiving. It was not just a hard sell in Paul's day. It's a hard sell in ours. But Paul says that this kind of prayer is a crucial mark in whether or not the gospel has been percolating throughout your life. It's an important implication of whether or not the gospel is at work in you. Now, why is that? It's because it's an indicator of what you really worship. Thanksgiving shows what you worship. It shows what you approve of. It shows what you value most highly. Just think about it for a moment. When, when are you thankful? It's when you get something that you want, right? It, how do you respond when someone gives you something that you have been looking for, something that you value, something that you think is good? You're thankful. And you say thank you to them. Why? Not because your parents taught you to be polite, but because you genuinely, in that moment, feel it. You really are thankful. So why would you be genuinely thankful for people in authority even if you don't like them, even if you don't like their decisions. You could go down the road of saying, well, you know, some government is better than no government. Total anarchy is always worse. A world where no one is in charge, where anyone can do whatever they want without consequence to anyone they want, at any time they want, that's worse than even a bad government. There's some truth to that. You realize that government and authority is a gift from God. It's especially in a gift to a world that has rejected him and rejected his authority. For him still to establish any authority, that's a blessing we don't deserve. It's a gift. Some truth there. But it misses something really important. Because when you say something like that, you're only looking at life horizontally with respect to other people, with respect to what human governments can achieve. And what you've forgotten is that God himself has purposes in this world, that he rules this world for good, and that he works in and through our nations, through human authorities, to accomplish those purposes. You're forgetting Proverbs 21.1, that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. You're forgetting Daniel 2.21, that God removes kings and sets up kings. You're forgetting John 19.11, when Pilate, the Roman governor, told Jesus that he had the authority to crucify Christ. Jesus responded by saying, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. God rules over all other rulers. That's what Paul means here when he says, verse 5, for why do we do these why do we pray in these kinds of ways for kind of a sense of because here for there is one god that's why we pray there's only one god there's only one ruler above all other rulers all the other authorities are under him and under his direction he sets them in place he moves them he directs them so that what so that they do what is necessary for what he has planned and so he rules over this whole earth to do what? To bring his Messiah at the right time. He rules over the earth so that Jesus 
can do what he needed to do in order to rescue his people on the cross. And he continues to rule this world so that that news can now go out to others, both verbally and by watching us as we live our lives. That's God's agenda. That's what he thinks is best. That's what he thinks is actually going to restore this broken world in the best way possible. That's how he's directing all of history. It's the goal toward which he's moving as he raises up and removes kings and other human authorities. And you will only enter into that agenda with enthusiasm. You're only going to give yourself to it. You're only going to pray with thanksgiving to the extent that God's agenda matters to you. That God's agenda captures you more than you are captured by any other agenda. You'll often hear Christianity talked about as being countercultural that it fits perfectly into no human society. It's always pushing the boundaries in different kind of ways. I'd suggest this is one of the places where in our present historical moment, Christianity is most countercultural. Because our modern approach to government is what? It's to idolize government, to idolize what government can do, to idolize it and give whatever power we have to it believing that government can eliminate evil, can create a good world, if only the right people and the right policies are put in place. And so we are passionately for government, depending on who's in authority, or passionately against it. We either worship the existing government, believing it can do no wrong, or we try to change it so that we can worship it. We're elated when our side wins, angry and depressed when it doesn't catastrophizing what the future might now be. And Jesus calls us to something bigger, to join him in working for a kingdom that, as he said to Pilate in John 18, 36, is not of this world. He said, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. If his kingdom is not of this world, and he's brought us into that kingdom that's not of this world, then our prayers need to be in line with that kingdom, trusting that whatever God does in the kingdoms of this, of this world will lead to the full expansion and will lead to the consummation of his kingdom. This is how you pray with thanksgiving, then, for those in authority over us. You have to let your eyes move up beyond them, beyond their agenda, maybe even beyond your own, to the greater one who's over them, the one who is working through them to bring his kingdom in the way that he knows is best. And so you let God and what he values become the primary focus of your prayer. That's what you're thankful for, because that's what you most want. Because this is the God you most love, because of how much he's loved you, you now want what he wants. This is the one you most trust because he, of how he's given himself to you to earn your trust. You want this one's ways, you really believe they're best, because you believe that he knows more than you ever will. And so you can pray with thanksgiving for whatever he decides, however he decides to answer your prayers with the rulers and the authorities of this world. Even if you think, man, I... Respectfully, Lord, I'd not have done it that way. But I trust you that what you're doing 
in however you answer my prayer is going to accomplish your purposes, and I want what you're doing more than I want anything else. Thank you, Lord Jesus. That's the goal. Let's be honest, that's hard. Some of you are squirming. It's always been hard. The prophet Jonah wanted nothing to do with a God who worked in and through the Assyrian nation that he despised. So Jonah ran away. Prophet Habakkuk, different experience. He told God that he couldn't stand looking at the evil that was all around him in Judah anymore, especially as he said in chapter 1-4, the wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. What's he saying? He's saying, God, the way this country is run here in Israel is horrible. It's perverted. He literally asks God, verse 3, why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Why do you let an unjust government stay in power? To which God basically answers, I got this. I'm sending the Babylonians to punish Judah. (laughs) And Habakkuk loses it, and I'm always like, wait, what? He says, chapter 113, you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous, the Babylonians? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? God, what are you thinking here? Israel's bad. I already said that. Babylon is worse. What are you doing? And then there's a shift in the book. Because God reveals that his justice is not only big enough to deal with injustice in Judah, it's also big enough to deal with injustice in Babylon. Because God is big enough to deal with both Babylon and Judah. And he will accomplish his purposes through both of them. Habakkuk, seeing this, ends the book with a long prayer of praise, of rejoicing, even if everything in his country turns out badly. You think, what's going on there? Is he thankful for bad things? Thankful that evil and horrible things are about to happen at the hands of evil and horrible people? No. He's thankful that God is in charge and that God's purposes will prevail even over governments that are unjust, that crush the people rather than serve them. And so you and I, what? We pray the same way. We thank God that our authorities are under a supreme authority, that they are not autonomous, that they can't just do anything that they please. We thank God that they cannot halt the inbreaking power of the kingdom of God. They can't stop God's kingdom breaking into this world in general. They can't stop it breaking into your life in particular. We thank God that he's going to use all of these things, including bad decisions by bad governments, to bring about his plans and purposes. Does that mean that we don't try for anything better? That we just live with the status quo, put up with whatever our government is doing? No. We're being urged here to pray because we're not okay with the way that things are. We're to ask God for things that are better, to intercede on behalf of those in authority so that they will line up more with what God is doing, so that we can more fully enter in to what he's given us to do. Scripture always assumes that our leaders have to love justice and they have to love ruling justly or they risk God's judgment. So praying with thanksgiving does not mean that we just sit back and accept whatever they do. There are still things that we can do within what our government allows. We can vote, we need to, we can protest when necessary. More than any of those things, however, we need to pray. 
And we need to pray with thanksgiving because we believe that there is a God above all others. A God who involves himself in this world for the sake of bringing his kingdom. And we trust the way that that God rules the world. And the way that he answers our prayers is going to be exactly what this world needs in order to end up in the best place that it possibly could. Which means we pray for the space to live our lives according to his word. Now, in a world of political activism, that sounds so mundane. But that's because the world's goals and God's goals are different. Activists have to be focused on the present moment, on the here and now. They are focused on the glory of what humanity can accomplish. God is focused differently. He's focused on a world that pleases him, one that shows the glory of what he accomplishes. Think about the contrast there, though. Humanity, in pursuing our own glory apart from God, put itself on a road so that when God himself, Jesus Christ in the flesh, stood there, they didn't recognize him. And their choice in that moment was to condemn an innocent man to die because it was politically expedient to do so. That's what humanity's glory produces. On the other hand, God's glory does what? It leads him to being willing to be rejected, willing to set aside his rights, willing to set aside his power in order to save people who were focused on their own glory even when their glory is nothing to brag about. How you pray shows which glory captivates you. If you don't pray with the attitude of thanksgiving, it's questionable whether you really believe that God's in charge of the world and whether you really believe that his ways are best. Verse 3 tells us that this kind of prayer is pleasing in God's sight. So if you're not praying like this, clearly it's not pleasing in your sight. It's not best, it's not most glorious, it's something else is. Something that you value more than God's approach. Something that you think will be more effective, that will produce a better life for you, better life for society. Something that shows your faith is really in something else. See, if you say in your heart, I'm only going to thank God when the leaders that I want do the things that I approve of, what you're really saying is that your wants and your desires are supreme, not God's. That you have a better way of running and rescuing this world than he does. If you can't conceive of God using, and hear the verb there, not approving, using. If you can't conceive of God using evil leaders in unjust governments to extend his kingdom throughout the world, you haven't studied much of the history of God's people. And you really don't understand what Jesus is doing down there in front of Pilate. This is not a statement that approves of evil or approves of injustice. It's not a statement that says, just deal with it, don't try to change anything. It's a statement that says human beings are not supreme in this world. Not even those who hold the most power. God is. And for that, we should approach him with hearts that are thankful because of what he's doing now, because it will serve to bring his kingdom, which will be a future that because of who God is, there won't be a better one. And when you don't want to, when you find yourself grumbling about your government, 
preoccupied with who's in power or about to take power or how they're using power, remind yourself you're looking at the wrong power, at the wrong level of power. And you're doing that with the wrong agenda in mind. Remind yourself instead of Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, the one who held all power because he created all things, including the human authorities that now run our country. Remind yourself that Jesus voluntarily chose to give up his power to submit himself to a torturous death on the cross, setting aside his power to set others free who deserve that death, but who could never free themselves because you and I did not have enough power to do that. So Jesus, the all-powerful, gave up his power, tasted death when he didn't have to, in order to give power, the power of life, to those who didn't have it on their own. He became, verse 5, the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, meaning for all people, not just a small, select group of people. Jesus submitted himself to the authorities of his day, including unjust authorities. Why? He had God's purpose in view. And because he trusted that God's way of producing an eternally just society really was best. So when you find something else matters to you more than what God is doing here on this earth, through the authorities on this earth, what do you do? Run to your mediator, the one who's ransomed you from all of the non-God things that you've ever worshipped. Ask him to forgive you, and then ask him to give you greater confidence in his plans and purposes than you have right now. And then what? Go and live your life as godly as you possibly can. It'll be a blessing to you. It will honor God and will invite others. Lord Jesus, thank you for our government officials. Lord, I confess to you, I don't pray that nearly enough. Thank you, Lord, for what you are doing in and through them. Lord, I don't always see clearly, I don't understand, but you have been extremely clear that what you are doing through whomever is there, whether that's at the national level, state, local, that you are doing that in such a way to bring about your kingdom on this earth. Lord, that's true here. That's true in countries where persecution takes place. And yet, Lord, you still build your kingdom. Lord, I do pray for our leaders that they would make decisions that allow us the freedom to obey you, to live lives openly declaring who you are to you, to each other, and to the larger world. And Lord, whatever you decide to do with that prayer, I want to thank you. I know it's going to be best. I know it's going to bring your kingdom here on earth, and it'll do so in, in a way that is the same as in heaven. Lord Jesus, me and my brothers are going to spend, and sisters are going to spend eternity praising you, thanking you, declaring that you could not have done anything better. And so I pray for your grace to enter our lives now so that we start that praising and thanking today. And we don't just wait to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.